everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. Matt, how you doing, buddy? It's the most wonderful time of the year, man. It's it's award season. Aren't you excited? Yeah, if my fantasy film team wasn't such a train wreck, I'd be a little more excited. Ugh. What have you felt like you, if you had this do over again, what have, what did you invest heavily into that didn't pan out for you at this point? Missing out on maybe Bradley Cooper, everyone involved with The Favorite. I, th- I think, and we'll get into this later, I think given Yorgos's uh, history, everyone just assumed it'd be a little too weird for awards season, mm-hmm. uh, even with the buzz, even with the cast. So maybe investing a little more heavily in that. I mean, I did good with my movies. I have Vice and A Star is Born. Like, that, that's going to pan out. But Yeah, you and I are right smack dab in the middle of the pack, and I think mathematically it would be a miracle if either of us were competitive. could be competitive at this point. I got heavily into Widows, which isn't going to end up panning out, and I, I'm i heavily into Vice at relative, uh, relatively heavily into Vice at the moment. I'm, I got Adam McKay, Sam Rockwell, and Christian Bale, and at the moment that movie's kind of on the bubble, I'd say. I feel like we can yep. go. We can go either way. And mm-hmm. um, I've actually talked to some people who've seen it already, who didn't like it, and then uh, all of a sudden it starts getting some Golden Globe nominations, including one for Best Picture, and it seems like it might be a contender again. So I, I don't know. I really feel like this movie is going to divide people heavily. It's just a question of whether or not the Academy warms to it. I have a feeling that they might, because it seems like they like Adam McKay. They've already given him an Oscar before. Yeah, it, it, so. it's weird. Like you know. There are some haters of Big Short, and I think that's an incredible movie. I think you're a little less enthusiastic about it than I am. Did the people you talked to who had seen it, were they Big Short people? No, not necessarily. So maybe it's an Adam McKay thing. Yeah, it might be an Adam McKay thing. So there you go. So, and, you know, yeah, I wasn't over the moon about the Big Short, but I definitely appreciated it. I always felt it was also going to be a little bit of a hard sell in today's climate. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a, we just got to see it, man. We just got to get. We're gonna see <laughs> we just it. needed to be out there so we can all see it and argue about it. Yeah, no more speculating on movies we haven't seen yet. I guess. Yeah, I mean, at this point, <laughs> we were talking a little bit before the podcast. I think on the basis of sex and um, Mary Queen of Scots, you also got a little bit invested in Mary Queen of Scots. I did. I did. Right? Uh, yeah, I wasted probably three picks on that. Yeah. So that was probably another thing that that hurt you a little bit. Um, and it seems like that movie's not necessarily going to be a contender. Although Margot Robbie, a little bit of a little bit of rumblings about her. But yeah, at this point, it seems like it is definitely the um, Stars Born slash Roma show. I mean, I feel like if we had to give the Oscars out tomorrow mm-hmm. it sounds like you give best director to quran and you give best picture to a star is born and it's just a question of how the campaigns play out over the next two months oh the the other thing that really kind of screwed me was i kept ryan gosling on my team and i you, you know you have to assume that that was going to be a slam dunk but uh yeah but just it's totally deflated the the buzz around that movie which is unfortunate but after seeing it it kind of makes sense you know it, it's not the kind of movie that people are going to really rally behind unfortunately i suppose although on paper i agree with you it sounded like a slam dunk and honestly it is one of my favorite films of the year i mean that movie is going it, to it's going to place very high on my spoilers going to place very high on my top 10 list for 2018 so i'm saddened by the fact that people didn't get behind that movie i mean it's going to end up losing money which is crazy i know because it wasn't even all that expensive mm-hmm. to, but yeah i mean we can't even necessarily include gosling in this conversation if anybody i mean it seemed like seems like claire foy might still have a snowball's chance here but well it's crazy that gosling in the you know in the golden globes couldn't even get a nomination with two different best actor categories well you want to get into it then since we have some nominations that have come out since we talked last golden globes notoriously are uh no, known for their silly nominations and bad nominations and this year is no different three movies and best motion picture drama that uh i would say don't deserve to be there and that's black panther black Klansman, and uh bohemian rhapsody to be fair, I haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody, but everything I've heard from reviews and people who have seen it says it's just pretty middle-of-the-road mediocre. I don't know. Have you actually seen that movie? I haven't, but I, I mean, now I'm going to have to. Yeah. I mean, there's no way that Rami Malek doesn't get nominated for Best Actor at this point. seems like he is a slam dunk, and I, I have this new policy that I've been abiding by the last few years where I see every single Oscar nominee, even if that means having to sit through The Boss Baby and Trolls. <laughs> So I guess I'm going to have to... I yeah, you're going to have to I do could it. Avoid being, yeah, I'm just going to have to rip that Band-Aid off. No, I, I've, I've yet to talk to anybody who... I've talked to people who like it. I've yet to talk to anybody who admits to it being good. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like it. Clearly, it was a huge hit. But I've yet to talk to anybody who will actually rally behind it as an example of solid filmmaking. You know, I think the interesting thing here with the Golden Globe nominees is... 
sort of the flip-flop nature of the best comedy and best motion picture. Uh, you know, there are a couple of uh, musicals in the best drama, and there are a couple of movies in the best comedy that could have been in best drama, whatever, yeah. <laughs> what the fuck ever. Um, but, a lot of uh, category fraud going on this year, more so than usual. <laughs> yes, but I, I think this has to be the first year ever where the slate of best comedies are better than the slate of best dramas. Yeah, but it, it, at least in terms of the ones that we are very confident are going to end up as Best Picture nominees, right? Yeah, for sure. At this point, I'd say Green Book, The Favorite, and Vice are probably Best Picture slam dunks, unless Vice turns out to be really, really polarizing. And maybe even Mary Poppins Returns. Apparently, it's wonderful. Yeah, people um, love it. I think Crazy Rich Asians is is really an outside chance at this point. Nothing would make me happier, A, because it's on my team, and B, because I really, really like that movie a lot. So... I think it would be a really great, I, I, I don't know, it wouldn't even be a statement. I think that movie deserves to be one of the 10 Best Picture nominees. Look, I, I haven't seen If Beale Street Could Talk. I, I can't wait to. But I you know, I have seen Crazy Rich Asians, and it's definitely better than Black Panther and Black Klansman. Again, this starts off the, the Golden Globes categories as, as pretty pretty weird um you know category fraud like you said is uh, is running rampant here it speaks a lot to the strength of a star is born how a star is born is the clear front runner here that that movie would have been a slam dunk in the um, musical category if they'd ran it that way right it's it shows how confident they are that they decided to camp they decided to go for drama yeah i mean unless the black panther train really ramps up here and that movie ends up like making a enormous statement about the strength of studio filmmaking or or superhero filmmaking in today's modern landscape it's not even the best marvel movie of the year i know i know exactly right god damn it i agree i agree i'm not crazy about about black panther either or at least i i certainly don't think it's one of the best films of the year Mm -hmm. but uh it's gonna happen dude it's gonna get nominated for best picture i mean it's crazy to think about that but it's absolutely gonna happen yeah it could win but for the as far as the golden globes are concerned uh yeah star is born ends up in the drama category and it's probably gonna win in that category so nominations, I was happy to see. Uh, happy to see Elsie Fisher and Constant Wu and best uh, yeah. best actress. That's pretty fun. Uh, glad Robert Redford got Old Man and the Gun. I wish I wish that movie had a little more hype um, around it. But everything else is kind of kind of chalk, right? Kind of what we expected in the actor actress categories, right? Any, any crazy surprises to you? Uh, surprises, not especially but has there ever been a more lock you can you know you can take this to the bank absolutely is going to happen nomination for a movie that nobody has seen than glenn close and the wife <laughs> i mean she has been nominated for everything and will be nominated for an oscar for a movie that i've yet to I, I haven't even heard from any critics who've seen this movie and i listen to a lot of podcasts with a lot of critics nobody has seen this movie i don't i don't even know where to look for it at this point i don't think this movie actually exists i feel like this happens every year and it's like it's either glenn close or julianne moore <laughs> it's right it's it's for still alice is a real thing i, I can confirm that's a real movie i saw in the theater <laughs> But there's movies that are not critically acclaimed except for the the lead, who's apparently amazing in a movie that's not great. But it seems to be a constant, constant theme. But you're going to have to see The Wife based on your uh, your policy. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to have to find a pirated version or something. You might also have to see Stan and Ollie. Yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, that's I, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty... The only reason, right, don't get me wrong, I love Riley as much as the next guy. He has four, He had four movies out this this season ralph breaks the internet sisters brothers stan and ollie and then he still has holmes and watson coming up right yeah yeah four movies in two months crazy but yeah speaking of him it was weird to see him in there and it was also a little weird to see rosamund pike for private war sneak in there mm-hmm. um another film that i have, have yet to see and i really dig her it's just i haven't heard jack squad about that movie mm-hmm. um yeah fun to see elsie fisher in there I'm very sad that, uh, speaking of Crazy Rich Asians, that it seems like Michelle Yeoh is not going to factor into this race, which is a shame because I feel like she steals that movie. And with all due respect to Constance Wu, I think Michelle Yeoh, that's the role, right? I mean, that is the juicy supporting actress role. That's the one you nominate. It is, but I do understand Constance Wu getting nominated for for that category, too. I thought she was pretty delightful in that movie. I, th- I think it. She made it look a little easier than that. Than that role probably was. But yeah, it, it would have been cool to see Michelle Yeoh get some get some love. And she's she's got a few really good awards scenes in that movie. Anything else in the Golden Globes? Should we move to the the SAGs and and, and Critics' Choice? Yeah, let's move on. Uh, what do you think about the SAG Awards? Uh, I was not terribly surprised by any of it right you know for better for worse is probably going to be a little bit closer to uh, what the oscar nominations end up looking like yeah you know i haven't seen mary poppins returns yet and i'm sure she's wonderful in it and i'm sure she'll probably get nominated for it but i do kind of wish that 
we were talking a little bit about more about Emily Blunt in A Quiet Place, uh, which is a movie that I'm not even all that crazy about, but she's just so phenomenal. And I mean, she's always phenomenal, but especially like there's just something about the, the way the movie really, really depends on her nailing that part. Krasinski gives her things that she has to do and, and gives her challenges that he doesn't give for his own character, even to the kids. I mean, I really think she kind of carries that movie in a lot of ways. So I wish we were talking a little bit more about that film and about that performance. Yeah. I mean, Mary Poppins is obviously a little more showier of, <laughs> of a role. Um, yeah, I'm excited to see it. I, you know, I, We've been joking about Lin-Manuel Miranda in that role, and you know he got nominated for Golden Globe and sort of anti-Lin-Manuel Miranda. I can't imagine. I mean, it's a Rob Marshall movie. I can't imagine the movie's that good. People are losing their shit over it, though, so <laughs> I guess we both have to walk in and see it. Yeah, never count Rob Marshall out. I mean, nine still got a bunch of uh, or a handful of Oscar nominations. Lin-Manuel Miranda has his work cut out for him weaseling into that supporting actor category, though, because it's going to be stacked. Sam Elliott was not nominated for a Golden Globe, weirdly enough. Uh, the other Sam Rockwell took that spot, but he gets in there for the SAGs, and I do feel like he is still kind of the front runner. Although I could see them going with Richard E. Grant because you know he's a beloved journeyman. Mahershala Ali is obviously wonderful as well, and if it turns out that they're not going to give Green Book Best Picture, but they still want to make an ovation to that film, you could certainly see Mahershala Ali winning his second Oscar. Mm-hmm. Um, seems like Adam Driver at this point is a lock, which surprises me because it didn't. He didn't feel like a standout when I saw Black Klansman, but then again, I was very taken with uh, John David Washington mm-hmm. and honestly with Topher Grace. So yeah. <laughs> Adam Driver didn't really occur to me while I was watching that film, but it seems like it seems like it's going to happen. He's He's been nominated for everything thus far. Um, and moving to the Critics' Choice, which has a longer list of nominees for each category. Again, nothing terribly surprising. It was nice to see Ethan Hawke get in there for First Reformed and Ryan Gosling in there for First Man. Yeah, I was, I'm surprised how, how difficult this has been on Ethan Hawke thus far. It seems like, I guess it's just because nobody's seen that movie, although it's, you know, topping a lot of critics' top 10 lists. Yeah, and it's been free on Hulu for months now or whatever. So, I mean, there's no excuse not to see that movie. It's quick, you know, it's an easy watch, too. I mean, not easy. Yeah, I really thought this, (laughs) I thought this was going to be the, you know, Christian Bale versus Ethan Hawke thing all the way through. But I think at this point, it's still an uphill battle for Ethan Hawke to get himself that Oscar nomination. Honestly, three months ago, thought, oh, this is a slam dunk. This is going to be a great, this is going to be a great time to give Ethan Hawke kind of a little bit of a Lifetime Achievement Award for a role he actually does deserve to win an Oscar for. It seemed to me like the narrative was there. I, th- right? I think he can still fit in there because, you know, who are the locks for Oscar nominations? Christian Bale, Bradley Cooper, and Viggo Mortensen. I, I could see Rami Malek not getting an Oscar nod. I could see Willem Dafoe not getting an Oscar nod. So, you know, I think everyone likes Ethan Hawke. I don't know if he's just out there campaigning. I'm guessing he's not. But, I don't know, I think there's a, there's a chance. I, I'm rooting for him, of course. He just had an amazing year you know he had three movies out one of which he wrote and directed yeah i don't know just his role and first it's just such a mm, that that's that's just one of those roles you're like yeah this is it this is when ethan hawk finally wins his oscar yeah. but it's gonna be damn hard to get past bradley cooper yeah i had a great ethan hawk day the other day i watched first reformed and juliet naked back to back it was nice very enjoyable <laughs> Get a hold of Blaze and make and do and so you can see all three. Blaze is actually pretty great. Okay, okay, I will. And he does have a small part in it, um, but I won't give it away. Um, I do think, unfortunately, Rami Malek is a lock. I think Vigo is probably a lock as well. So there's still so, one spot open. Yeah, I think that I think that's your five. I think that's your five. Bradley Cooper, Kristen Bale, Ethan Hawke, Rami Malek, and Vigo Mortensen. I just don't see John David Washington cracking that that top five when the Oscars roll around. But j- just to briefly linger on the SAG's Bohemian Rhapsody, it's there in that ensemble category. Mm-hmm. That's performance by Cat. It's just, it's crazy to me that this movie now seems like it might get nominated for Best Picture, a movie nobody seems to think is good. I don't think it will be. I think the Oscars are a little more, I'll make a bet with you that it's not nominated. I'll even give you odds. I don't want to get involved in that kind of venture because I'm hopeful that it's not. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to bet that it will, even if it means I might make some money off of it. Who else is in Bohemian Rhapsody? I mean, I know Mike Myers has a scene. Are there other standouts in that movie, though? Uh, I'm looking at Joseph Mazzello, Tom Hollander, mm-hmm. uh, Ben Hardy. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's not like this sprawling ensemble of people that we know and love. I need I need to see it so that I can be part, so I can speak about this in the kind of so I can give this movie a hard time from an educated perspective. But Crazy Rich Asians nominated for the SAG Award for ensemble, which warms my heart. I really hope it gets nominated for Best Picture. That would just make me so happy. And and then there's your Black Clan or your uh, Black Panther. I mean, I do I do think the cast is probably the best thing going for Black Panther, but. 
Yeah, fair enough. So Ensemble, I think, is, is pretty... Yeah, because that is one of the strongest casts of any movie this year. You know, moving back to the Critics' Choice, uh, I think one of the more notable things here is the uh, appearance of Roma in a bunch of categories, especially Yelitsa Aparicio in uh, Best yeah. Actress category, which would be... You know, we're going to talk about Roma a little later, but I think she still has a really good chance of getting that Oscar nomination. It just depends. I mean, we look at that. Who who thinks a lock there? Lady Gaga, Melissa McCarthy, Emily Blunt, probably, and Olivia Coleman, I guess. So, so it's either Yulitia or Glenn Close, or they have Tony Collette here. But I love that Tony Collette's, and that makes me so happy. Honestly, she would be my winner in that category at this point. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, although it's a really competitive category this year, I think Olivia Coleman's amazing. I think Yulitsa Aparicio is amazing. I'd say if I was going to, uh, if I was going to bet on it right now, I'd say Glenn Close, you go Close, Gaga, Coleman, Aparicio, and McCarthy. Okay. I just have a hard time imagining. Although you know what, a- Emily Blunt, Ju- man, Ju- Julie Andrews. Yeah, Julie Andrews won an Oscar for playing Mary Poppins, so it it could happen. I wish I could say that Melissa McCarthy was on the bubble, not because I dislike Melissa McCarthy. I'm just not crazy about that movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you ever forgive me? I wish she was on the bubble, and you could make it Blunt, Close, Gaga, Coleman, and Aparicio. Yeah. But I think at this point, it's Aparicio who's on the bubble, which is crazy because, she, with the exception of Tony Collette, I'd say Yelitsa Aparicio might be the female performance of the year. Yeah. Um, I mean, the movie she completely rests on her shoulders. Although I love Olivia Coleman as well. Honestly, this category could go a couple different ways, and it won't totally break my heart. I like Lady, Lady Gaga a lot, but she's the more films I see, the further down she she tends to fall. Yeah. And that movie as well by association. I, she could win it. She could very easily win it. You you can feel you know you can feel the love for her and for that performance and the idea of the sort of like meta textual ovation anointing this person for this particular story right yeah I'm I'm on Team Gaga always will be so are you okay yeah I'm a, I'm a big fan although you know we'll see who I actually think should win once we have the final nominations but it's it's gonna be hard to root against Olivia Coleman yeah any any other anything else notable from these from these nominations Matt Michael B Jordan's in there which makes me really happy mm-hmm. at this point I I think he's He's got the proverbial snowball's chance, although I'd love it if he could sneak in there. I'm not sure who he would have to bounce. I guess he'd have to bounce Adam Driver. Yeah. I don't know. It would make me so happy. You know, he, he's going to end up having two very big hits this year. He's been anointed as this superstar. And to me, he is the thing that really pushes Black Panther over the top into, I mean, he, he he's what really what makes that movie for me. And if that movie does deserve to be nominated for Best Picture, and if it is one of the best films of 2018, it's because of him. I wish we were talking about him more in this i mean we keep talking about black panther's getting an nominee for best picture it might even win is it the best is it the most important movie of 2018 okay if it is all those things why are we not talking about michael b jordan more in the sporting actor category he he steals that movie yeah, as far superhero as movies only as good as its villain it's not even the best villain in a marvel movie this year yeah <laughs> that's as good as he is <laughs> but that's the oscar doll refrain yeah 2018 <laughs> it's not even the best blank in a marvel movie uh, old man year. screaming on a cloud yeah uh, <laughs> Um, all right, should we start talking about some movies we saw? Yeah, let's do it. So we're going to talk about uh, the favorite shoplifters in Roma in that order. The favorite has had a lot of buzz for a long time. I believe it premiered at Venice and then won the grand jury prize there. The the newest film by Yorgos Lanthimos, uh, just a odd Greek man. Um, whose last two films, The Lobster and The Killing of a Sacred Deer, have been sort of critical cult darlings, I guess you could say. Coming into award season and looking at the landscape, you know, everyone marked this movie based on the cast and Yorgos as a filmmaker. Um, I think there was some reticence maybe about prognosticating its awards potential based on how weird his previous movies are and how sort of maybe clinical and unfeeling they are so that's not really the kind of thing that voters are going to gravitate towards all those fears were for naught because this movie has universal acclaim for good reason man i fucking love this movie yeah it's pretty great i uh, i just saw it for my second time and uh, i liked it even more the second time around saw it at the new york film festival back in september september it was a lot to take you know like it was the opening night film there was a lot going on there was a lot riding on it I I'd heard so much about it, and I was just kind of overwhelmed by it. So I had a couple months to stew on it before going back to see it again. And yeah, I mean, this is really perfect movie for right now. And um, <laughs> Lanthimos really manages to acquit himself in terms of sticking to his 
artistic guns yeah. and making it feel very much like a Lanthimos film, despite the fact he didn't actually write it, while also making the closest thing he's made to a quote-unquote crowd pleaser yet, right? I think the difference is that he didn't write this movie, you know? I think if you leave him up to his own devices, he's going to be a little more transgressive and a little more in your face and unsentimental, I suppose. And this movie a crueler, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And, and this movie does have a little more heart. But I think the marriage of the of the script with his style and maybe you you have a better way of explaining this, but technical how he does it, just the the low angle stuff. Whatever he does, it makes it feel so intimate and realistic somehow i don't know can you talk about sort of the way he filmed this movie and and what it does yeah i mean i think the most striking decision is to shoot so much of it with these crazy ultra wide what you might even refer to as a fisheye lens right base you're seeing so much of the environment that you're almost the environment is becoming if you'll pardon the cliche its own character in the film right Mm -hmm. the rooms that they're shooting in and the environments they're placing these actresses in And the way that he's sort of like composing and orienting everyone is obviously very, very intentional. It's you can you can see the influence of somebody like Stanley Kubrick in a film like Barry Lyndon, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, where there is like an ornate design element to how everyone is placed and composed. And uh, and yes, everyone, for the most part, is pretty much shot from a low angle, which is usually not a very attractive way to photograph uh, women especially yeah. most women really don't like the idea of you putting a camera you know below their waistline and shooting up at their chin um but this movie is obviously not necessarily invested in the idea of making any of these characters look attractive and as a result it's more about putting them in a position where they uh where there is a power dynamic and you know the very first thing you learn on the very first day of cinematography class is that you know you put the camera below someone and shoot up that you make them look powerful, you put the camera above somebody and shoot down at them, you make them look inferior, right? Yeah. And since this movie is all about people jockeying for these positions of power, it makes sense that he'd be shooting from below for uh, so much of it. And also sort of shying away from close-up. Yeah. I mean, this movie, when a close-up does happen, it, it has a big impact because he's he's practicing so much discipline in terms of not allowing any of these characters to be composed in close-up. Mm-hmm. So it's, I mean, there's so much intentionality going on in this movie, and that's sort of what we've come to realize. He's a director with a capital D, right? This Mm -hmm. is a director who makes choices, for better or for worse. And this is really, even though I don't necessarily think that this is his best film or even necessarily my favorite of his films, I completely understand why it's connecting with people. It's not, uh, you know, play school, my first Lanthimos or anything, (laughs) but it is, it does feel like a really effective entry point into his very kind of twisted sensibilities yeah it's twisted but i mean this is just raucously funny throughout right that's helpful yeah it it is yeah it's very helpful and you know the cast is obviously a a big part of that um you know emma stone and olivia coleman and rachel weiss are, are sort of perfect foils for each other throughout the movie it is a bizarre crowd pleaser and you have to just respect sort of the balls on on lanthimos to do this period piece in this manner, the tone and the absurdity of it, for whatever reason, somehow makes it seem more realistic than, you know, most period pieces set in this sort of time period. No matter how ridiculous some of the scenes are, I don't know, it just feels way more natural. And obviously part of that's the filming, but you got to give it up to the script for taking this point of view and for for Lanthimos for, for interpreting this way. I mean, what's a period piece that's anywhere similar to this? I mean, this film does feel pretty singular. Yeah, I mean, there's been much sort of written about the movie's kind of like anachronistic or incongruous storytelling decisions. Mm-hmm. There's a really incredible <laughs> there's a really incredible dance, dance sequence yeah. which might be my favorite scene in the it's, whole movie. It's unbelievable. It actually makes me want to go back and rewatch Billy Lynn's halftime walk because uh, <laughs> Joe Alwyn is is so exceptional in this movie. He's really actually having a great year. Mm-hmm. And there was just something about the approach to a dance number like that where you're like, okay, there's an intentional incongruity going on here where it's attempting to get inside the head of a character and show a sequence like this from Olivia Coleman's perspective, right? Yeah. And because the movie is perfectly willing to get subjective like that, it's sort of not constrained by a lot of the stuffy period piece beholden, period detail beholden aspects 
of other films of this ilk. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I had I wish I had some other comps off the top of my head I could use to um, to compare this movie to, especially if it meant helping people who haven't made up their mind whether or not they want to get out and see it. But I really think that it's kind of singular. I really yeah. don't think there's there's really much you can compare. There's never really kind of been a film like this. I mean, Barry Lyndon's kind of the only thing I go back to, not just because of the aesthetics of it, but because it also has a little bit of that kind of twisted sensibility about it, where there is a lot of there's a lot of dark humor to Barry Lyndon. Um, I have to give it up for Nicholas Holt in this movie. This movie like taught me Nicholas Holt in a way. I've never been a huge fan, but as, as you know, as of seeing this movie now. All of a sudden, I'm an enormous fan because I do think that he's a scene stealer. Yeah, I was about to say saying. I mean, I, I've never really thought one way or the other about him. Like, I've never understood sort of the appeal or whatever. But like by the end of the movie, my girlfriend and I were talking about this. By the end of the movie, anytime he showed up on screen, you just start laughing because you start laughing. You're, just, yeah. you're so ready. You're just ready for it. You want to mainline <laughs> everything he's doing uh, in this movie, which is which is great. And uh, Olivia Coleman, I you know I'm not terribly familiar with a lot of her work. I know she's done a lot of what uh tv in the uk darn good in the lobster actually she's wonderful in the lobster i, re- I rewatched it over the weekend just because so did I, I yeah i'm just an alantha it's on netflix right now and i'm just an alanthos kind of mood and i i do still think that's kind of his masterpiece at this point i, I think it's his best film that and dogtooth probably but yeah olivia coleman is very very funny in that movie and she's a standout and obviously made an impression on lanthimos i'm so glad that we're not having some sort of weird conversation about category fraud and about who should be run for actress or supporting i mean she is the star of this movie. This she yeah. she is the lead character of this film. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad that 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 whole subject matter went out the window immediately at the beginning of this campaign. Because yeah, this is this is totally her movie. And Rachel Weisz and Emma Stone are literally and figuratively subservient to her mm-hmm. role. And and she's amazing. She's wonderful. I mean, again, if if, if she didn't have to deal with you know, with Lady Gaga and Yelitsa Aparicio. If it wasn't such an uncommonly strong year, I'd say let's just give her the Oscar right now. I agree, and you know, we'll see where my heart is on on Oscar night, who I'm actually rooting for. But uh, she's she'll probably be the one. You know, I'm I'm really happy for for Emma Stone. I think she is incredible and super game for this role and uh there's a period in her career where you're like oh what are you doing you know during the amazing spider-man years and whatever but um <laughs> i'm glad she's you know finding finding the right roles now and you know who, who would you give the supporting actress to between vice and and emma stone i wish there was a way we could just split it <laughs> i wish there was a way that, we could that, just the send voters them both might there. do that yeah. it has happened before technically I, there there was a year when i want to say it was barbara streisand and vanessa redgrave maybe there there has been a year where they they literally had a tie but it's very very rare that that happens and who knows maybe nowadays with all the different preferential ballots and stuff maybe it's impossible yeah, it but is. wouldn't it be cool if they if they really could just be like look you're both amazing you're both so incredibly important to this thing. You have such an unbelievable dynamic, and this movie only works if you're both sort of like working at the top of your game. You should just both have half an. You just both have an Oscar for this. Like, go ahead, just just get up there together, give a nice little tandem speech, and I mean, you really. I just can't separate these two performances. It, it, it does feel like one performance to me. You know, two prongs of the same performance because I can't choose a favorite. Pardon the pun. Yeah, yeah, they're both spectacular. Every scene with them shooting is great. Yeah, I, I love this movie. I can't, can't give enough love. I, I do think it. I, I rewatched The Lobster pretty soon after I saw The Favorite. That is sort of an angrier, less populist, less crowd pleasing movie for sure. Is it better than The Favorite? Uh, I don't know. I, I think I might like The Favorite better because I think it's funnier. But who knows? I need I need to see The Favorite again and and give it another go. I uh, I saw it on opening night as a big big crowd and it was just a hell of a good time. I think that The Lobster and even Killing of a Sacred Deer, which is maybe a, mo- a movie I may never watch again, are more disciplined films. They're cleaner films, I'd say, in some ways, in terms of the uh, the directorial approach. The the favorite to me feels a little looser, and this could be a, a symptom of, of Lanthimos working from someone else's script, but it feels a little bit more kind of like free and, and looser and not quite as clean, I'd say. Sure. Especially editorially. I don't necessarily mean to denigrate it that way. It is just to me, there are things about it. I'm just like, oh yeah, that's 
that's a little sloppy. And as a result, that's why I think something like the lobster is superior. Cause I just think it just seems to me like the favorite is kind of just like, it's throwing a lot more stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. And it seems like most of it does. And I understand why it's, it's become a little bit of a, of a crowd pleaser, which is a weird thing to call a film with a subject matter like this. You're right about the lobster, but I, I think it can be a little distancing, a little clinical in that way. Absolutely. Too. So yeah, it's um, not for everybody. And th- you know, that is the intent. So, um, all right, before we move on, I think the final scene is pretty darn perfect for a movie that probably was difficult to kind of come up with a clean ending uh-huh. did you like the last shot it, it it boggled me a little bit the first time it it went a little over my head i, I had to stew on it a little bit mm-hmm. i wasn't quite sure what he was going for and then thinking about it reading about it listening to a lot of podcasts about it and then going back into it to see it again with now kind of having a little bit of an idea about what the intention of it you know like what it meant uh-huh. i agree it is pretty darn effective okay and it's very lanthimosy so it, it is it is really him truly saying like don't forget I, I know we may have all had a really good time together and this may have been a little looser and more fun but <laughs> at the end of the day this is still a lanthimos joint so <laughs> yes. puts his proverbial stamp on it right there on the last shot yeah absolutely it's it's crazy to me that it is it this is this movie's probably gonna get nominated for best picture and it's probably gonna end up being a pretty decent sized hit. Yeah, for sure. So it it bodes well for the uh, sort of intellectual capacity of the modern audience. Good work, us as a society. Right? Yeah. Good work. I mean, I think yeah, I think Lanthimos has he's conditioned us a little bit. I mean, he's made three movies in three years, and they've all been very very challenging films. So I'm proud of him, and I'm proud of us. All right, shall we move on? Um, we're gonna talk about a movie that probably not a ton of people have seen. Just opened in Seattle. I think you saw it in when it opened in New York. What a week or two ago? A couple weeks ago? Over the weekend. Just Over the a couple weekend? days ago. There you go. Uh, a movie called Shoplifters. It's a Japanese film. Uh, nominated for Best Foreign Film at the Golden Globes. It's a pretty big shoo-in to get the nomination at the Oscars as well. Premiered at Cannes, won the Palme d'Or. Ringing endorsements. You'll see it on a lot of critics' top ten lists throughout the year. It's a movie I didn't really know too much about before I went and saw it. I'm not familiar with this filmmaker, but uh, I was happy to to give it a go, and it was a delightful little surprise. I mean, do you have any any more background on this film, Matt? Honestly, not really. This is this is completely a symptom of this film winning the Palme d'Or, and then it immediately having to end up on my radar as a result. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wish I could tell you that I was very familiar with Hirokazu Koreeda's filmography, but but I'm not. I, I mean, I've heard of a couple of the, of the film, you know, uh, like Father Like Son, I was familiar with After the Storm and then Still Walking, which I think is his most recent film. No, I guess Still Walking, then After the Storm, and then Shoplifters. So I'd heard I'd heard of a couple of his films, was familiar with him insofar as I knew he was kind of a Cannes Film Festival perennial. Yeah. But other than that, uh, no, I didn't. I really didn't know much about the movie. I'd seen the trailer, and that was that was about it. And um, I was just like, all right, well, this this movie is relevant. It's already won the Palme d'Or. It's a shoe-in to get nominated for a foreign film Oscar. It's going to be a very competitive year. Yeah. Foreign film is going to be very competitive. I mean, the, the easy answer at this point would be Roma. But I got to say, having seen Cold War recently, which we'll talk about in the coming weeks, and now having seen Shoplifters and having seen Burning, which is a movie I didn't really respond to, but is just critically beloved. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a really fun, it's going to be a fun race in the foreign film category. So, uh, so yeah, I went into this movie pretty much blind. I mean, the trailers don't really give you an indication of exactly how far this film is going to go mm-hmm. into its sort of familial melodrama. I was in a much different mood than I expected to be leaving <laughs> the theater after this movie. I'll put it that way. Yeah, this is a, so I saw this basically is the first part of a double feature with Roma. So I saw them back to back and both pretty similar films on a, on a very, you know, high level, uh, both about takes place over the course of a year with a family, family melodrama. But this movie has a very sort of particular tone, I guess, and sort of way it depicts family. And it's, it's very complex and wants you to ask questions about what it means to have a family. And, uh, how important bonds are and whether having ulterior motives to create relationships is a deal breaker in some ways besides all the sort of thematic elements it's just a great character study you know i walked out of this movie it's a pretty clean two hours and i feel like i knew you know like five very nuanced very complex characters and sort of the interwoven relationships 
between them. I mean, I guess the basic premise is a sort of a, fa- a cobbled together family of outcasts takes in a little girl who's being abused by her family and basically kidnapping her. And then it's about the relationships that grow from there. Um, it's basically a family of grifters <laughs> just getting on yeah. in the world, right? It's got a real kind of Oliver Twist composite thing going on, right? Yeah. I mean, the main, it's hard to call him the main character because this is 100% an ensemble, but. Uh, this this main dude who we're following a lot of the time uh, really has a bit of a Fagan thing going on, right? In terms of like how he's training these kids, it's the only thing he's qualified to teach anybody is how to shoplift, and so that's he's kind of putting together this merry little surrogate family of people who are just finding a way to get by together. Yeah, and it would be easy to just sort of like wave your finger at them and call them like you said you know grifters or squatters or whatever if they weren't all so committed to looking out for each other's well-being yeah i mean it it does make you ask like uh does it matter what you do in terms of your relationships with other people what it means to parent uh what what you can give uh, your children or give your relationships and if it's all worth it in the end if you've made connections and just sort of uh, about the I don't know, efficacy of a family unit in general. So you said you left the movie in a different mood than you expected to. What what mood did you expect and what mood did you leave in? <laughs> I was afraid this was going to be a very dry... I had just seen Burning 24 hours earlier, gotcha. which was very, very heavy. And, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, pigeon pigeonhole you know, all of Asian filmmaking, uh, <laughs> of course. But I, but you know, that movie was very long. It's a Korean film. It was very long, very heavy, very ponderous. And uh, I just, you know, left it feeling kind of drained. And I got to be honest, like for every for every one Pulp Fiction, you usually get five Palme d'Or winners that are a little dry and a little languid. Yeah. And so just not knowing much about this film or the filmmaker and just have it like sort of being somewhat familiar with the subject matter, and the fact that it was a Japanese movie, and I knew he was influenced by Ozu, who's, you know, a guy who makes deliberate familial melodramas that are very staid. Mm-hmm. And, I was, and I was just like, okay, this movie's going to be draining. It's going to be heavy. And it might be a little boring, to be perfectly honest. And this might feel like homework. And I got to say, I kind of felt, I left the theater kind of invigorated and in a pretty darn good mood and feeling pretty good about life and about humanity and thinking to myself, that was a pretty damn good time in the theater. I mean, this I wouldn't necessarily call this a... Well, I would call it a feel-good movie. I don't know if it has a happy ending, but I would say it's a feel-good film. It did sort of like reinvigorate my faith in humanity. And more than anything, it just was an extraordinarily pleasant cinematic experience. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And it's just... And like you said, clocks in at two hours and one minute or something. You know, two hours and 30 seconds or whatever. Gets in, gets out, doesn't waste a single shot. And honestly, doesn't have a false note. Like you said, you feel you feel like you understand each one of these. I guess there's six main characters if you count Grandma. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And you feel like you've had the time. You spent time with each of them. You know what they're all about. You get all the different connections. And you really feel like the movie is treating them like human beings. And as a result, I, I found it to be a very, very pleasant experience. I like this movie a lot. And I'm actually really looking forward to seeing it again. Yeah, this movie, you know, there's uh, the, the, main, the main guy, like you said, it's an ensemble, does some magic tricks near the end of this movie for his sort of, uh, for his quote unquote children. And this movie does sort of pull some magic tricks on you while you're watching it, right? Like, it, it dares you to fall in love with these people who are clearly doing some immoral bad things and have done some some bad stuff. And, you know, there's lots of slow reveals of past going on, but it never seems forced. The, the exposition is always perfect. And this movie just has an insane warmth to it. It's got a twinkle in its eye the whole time. And you can't help but love these people while they're doing bad things. I mean, it's got, and like I say, it is a melodrama, but there is no false note. It kind of feels like, uh, you know, almost like a peak Almodovar type movie almost like in, in the family sure. melodrama god damn yeah I, I i'm i'm kind of in love with this movie matt like i, I don't know where yeah. it's gonna end up on my top 10 but uh i thought the same thing going in i was like oh i'm, I'm in for a in for a long haul here i'm in for like a <laughs> you know manchester by the sea type situation with with this movie but uh from the very outset it's you know it, this movie just makes you chuckle and makes you feel warm and yeah faith in humanity is is a good it, it's a crazy it's crazy to say that given the characters' actions in this movie and how the movie kind of ends, but holy shit, it's uh, it's good. It, it's so not cynical about its subject matter in a way that's heartwarming throughout. Yeah, it drives around potential plot holes, uh, not plot holes. It, it drives around potential potholes rather 
at every turn. Like there's so many opportunities for it to to uh, fall into schmaltz and it never does. There's so many opportunities for it to fall into like heavy uh, alienating melodrama and it never does. There's so many opportunities for it to turn into sort of like social realism or whatever and it never really does that either. I mean, it just kind of like hits every note in a tonally perfect manner mm-hmm. and it's it's funny when it needs to be funny it's heartwarming when it needs to be heartwarming it's sad when it needs to be sad it's kind of sexy when it needs to be sexy yeah. which took, really took me by surprise <laughs> yeah. it just it just kind of has it all going on and you're just like all right well that's what a fucking palm door should look like right yeah it's, it should look like a movie that just does everything right and that's kind of where where this sits i found it to be a very yeah just a very unexpected i mean i i shouldn't have been surprised it's mm-hmm. critically beloved and won the fucking palm door but I just was surprised what a good time I had. Yeah, I, I think it's telling. You know, I was at a, a like a, a dinner party thing last night, and naturally, the movie I kept evangelizing to everyone <laughs> I saw. I was like, "You have to, you, you have to see this movie. It's not going to seem like the kind of movie you're going to want to see, but you got to go see it. It's you're you're going to love it." And you know, that's that's the sign of something great is if you're willing to stick your neck out and really implore everyone to check it out. I'm imagining you with your like brandy snifter and you've got like a cigarette and you're wearing like a beret. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, yeah, well, you know, Roma, of course, it's, you know, it's it's lesser Quran, but, um, uh, you know, Shoplifters really is the, the film of the year. <laughs> Just imagine you going to the SIF cinema and seeing multiple foreign films in a row and, <laughs> you know, walking around very artsy with your, with your cute little beret on. Well, you know, that's let's get into Roma because that is uh it's not inaccurate. Uh the bray and the cigarette weren't there, but uh called it called a glass of red wine and uh and some and, <laughs> and some Roma shoplifters uh comparisons happening. There's a lot to discuss here. I mean, the background's really interesting as well. Netflix movie, but it went out in theaters. Of all the movies to watch at home, this is not the one, which is why the Netflix thing is is pretty interesting. Thankfully, I got to see it on a big, big screen, which is the way nice. to do it. It's at the Cinerama. Isn't that the Cinerama? Didn't I hear it was going to play like a limited engagement at the Cinerama? Or am I crazy? Uh, it did, and that's where I saw it. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, Good. So I'm glad. That's a that's a big deal. Like, think about how crazy it is that a Spanish that a Mexican film, you know, a Spanish <laughs> language film is playing at the theater where The Last Jedi premieres in Seattle, right? <laughs> yeah, and I saw it the Friday 8 p.m. show, and it was uh, basically sold out. So Nice. Kudos to my heart. Seattleites. And especially so because they played a limited limited engagement the week before, before it came out on Netflix. I saw it the day it was out on Netflix, and people were still going to the theater, which really does warm my heart, actually. All right, Matt, how many, you've seen this once or twice or what? Seen it twice. Saw it at the New York Film Festival. It was the, the centerpiece film. So I saw it, the, it wasn't the opening, like the, you know, the opening night screening. It was the next afternoon, but Guillermo del Toro was there to introduce it. Ooh, cool. Quran uh, had, uh, he had like a family emergency or something, and he had to go hop on a plane. So he wasn't there to introduce the film, but he sent his buddy del Toro out to introduce it, which was actually kind of more fun because you got to hear del Toro basically just be effusive about his best buddy's movie right yeah and uh, you got to hear him just you know Quran would have been very respectful and very <laughs> you know very proud but also you know very humble whereas you get to see del Toro come out and be like this is one of the five greatest movies I've ever seen in my entire life I can't believe I know the guy who made this movie and uh, I, w- I was so excited that I got to be in the editing room with him and I told him I'm never this is the greatest film I've ever seen and I don't know it was just kind of adorable to see him gush about his butt but, uh, anyway saw it there everybody loved it and then saw it again over the weekend in theaters to another to a sold out show because I wanted to make sure to I, I wanted to see it again but I also really wanted to support it yeah in theaters because this is this is a big deal and this is obviously controversial for many reasons Reasons, and we don't even necessarily need to go too deep into it today because this is something we're going to be talking about for many, many years. It's just that this has kind of become the flashpoint film for this for this movement, right? Yeah. Or for this controversy or for this changing of the guard, whatever you want to call it. This is this is the movie that may very well go on to be Netflix's first Best Picture winner. Mm-hmm. And this is going to really shape this conversation going forward. Yeah. I, I was applying to a job at Netflix the other day and I was talking to my mom about it and she's like you should apply for all the jobs at Netflix like you should go on their classified ad you should just go through see what they're <laughs> offering like wouldn't it be great to work for Netflix like don't you want to be involved with a company like that and I was like I'm in no position to say no to work at this point in my life and you know I'm, I'm you know yes I'm sure they pay pretty darn well as Amazon does but I'm like I'm not sure if I want to support this I have many feelings about this company I have many feelings about what they're doing and what they represent and I'm not sure I mean I'm, I'm not I'm not very political 
politically minded, and I certainly am not educated enough to have a political conversation about American politics, but I am qualified to talk about what Netflix is doing and why it may potentially be a bad thing in the long run. And so this is something I have a lot of thoughts about. But as much as I am kind of adverse to the business model and to what they're trying to do, I mean, the the overarching kind of cliche at this point has been that Amazon wants to play the game and Netflix wants to change the game, right? Sure. If we go along with that, then maybe film theatrical exhibition either goes away or changes forever for the worse. Yeah. And that may not necessarily be a good thing. But the other flip side of the coin is if it wasn't for Netflix, would we have Roma? And is the world a better place because Roma exists? Yeah. So that's my long way of saying yes. I've seen the movie twice now (laughs) and I almost want to go see it again because I I really want to support, I I want to boost this film's theatrical numbers because I think it's important. Yeah. I mean, it's a complex argument because there are things to be said on both sides. And so if if I'm supporting Netflix, I'm saying that a, maybe this movie doesn't exist in its form without Netflix financing it, right? B, you know, I, I just read a story about how, uh, you know, movie going in America is up. It's like its highest level in years this year, right? So what is that attributed to? Well, there are ways you can slice and dice that. Maybe people watch stuff on Netflix and get a feel for it and makes them want to go see more movies. Who knows? And, you know, my experience in the theater on Friday, everyone in Seattle, I'm sure, has Netflix. But these people like me, still wanted to go see this movie on the big screen, okay? If you take that argument, you say, well, the people who were going to see this kind of movie on the big screen anyway are going to pay for it as opposed to watching it home at free because that's that's the kind of people they are, people who would want to see Roma. That audience is already going to go see it in theater, and maybe having it on Netflix is going to allow a much greater audience to actually see the movie who otherwise wouldn't pay to go see it, right? So perhaps you're increasing the viewership, and that's a good thing because the more people see Roma, uh, the better. We right? we want more people to see, quote-unquote, art house cinema. But then again, uh, Netflix is a cyn- cynical, money-making, profit-driven company, so fuck them too, right? I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I'm kind of with you. I, I, don't know, I don't know where I come down on this because there are so many arguments to, to be made both ways. Yeah, it's a very touchy issue. And in the grand scheme of things, you know, it's not a life or death. It's not a life or death issue, so we probably make a bigger thing about it than we make maybe should. But I'm with you that if this movie gets in front of more eyeballs, that's ultimately a good thing. I think I would prefer it if people didn't have the option to stay home and watch it on Netflix and had to go see in the theater because they had heard. I mean, you're right. There's a certain portion of the population that's just like, I don't really go to theaters anymore. And I certainly don't go to theaters to watch movies with subtitles, yada, yada, you know, whatever it is. So there's certain people who maybe end up watching it on Netflix just because it's so damn convenient who wouldn't have gone to see it in a theater anyway. But I would have liked to have seen a scenario wherein debatably most critically acclaimed movie of the year, which may end up going on to win Best Picture, was only available to people in the theaters for at least the first couple months it existed in the world. Mm -hmm. And people had to go see it in theaters because that was the only way to see it, and they wanted to be part of the conversation because all critics talk about is how much they love this movie, and it's landing on all these, you know, number one on all these top ten lists. So I would have liked to have seen that old-school scenario, but it's just not the world we live in anymore. And I'm assuming that Quran has been trying for many years to get this made in the traditional way and couldn't. And he found some daylight where he could get his passion piece made. He got to make it the way he wanted to. He got to make it with all the toy. You know, he got to make it with the kind of budget where he could properly realize it. Mm-hmm. And we can get into all the technical stuff. I mean, there's there's sequences in the film that are as like technically mind-blowing as anything you're going to see in, a, in a, an Avengers movie, right? Yeah, yeah. So he was able to do it properly in a way that, you know, Fox Searchlight may not have necessarily been willing to finance it or focus, you know, or Annapurna even. So, I mean, ultimately that the movie got made and you can see it in a theater is a good outcome. Yeah, Netflix would argue that, all right, guys, you get it. You get to have it both ways, you know, like we get to do our Netflix thing and make it available day and date. But for all you fucking old school crotchety traditionalists, fine, we'll put it out in theaters so you can watch it on the big screen the way Quran intended. Like, fine, we'll do it. But this is pretty rare. I mean, this is something that Netflix has traditionally not done and may do less and less of. This just seemed like a situation where Quran had the kind of, A, he had the clout to be able to lean on them a little bit, mm-hmm. and B, the film came out at these festivals and just started just steamrolling all these awards, and critics just started, you know, falling all over themselves. And so Netflix, I guess, was like, all right, fuck, we guess we got to do whatever Quran wants. Quran wants. Quran wants. 
because we want him to campaign for this thing because we want to uh, we want to have our first best picture we want to have an oscar in the netflix office i don't think this is going to win best picture man it's a long shot i'd say it'd be difficult for a film in spanish to beat you know a crowd pleaser like a star is born i you know the artist won so all bets are off i guess <laughs> um uh so yeah let's get into the movie itself i think i'm going to be on the lower end of the spectrum in my reaction to this movie and i think a big part of that is having seen shop lifters directly before it which is unfortunate so every shot in this movie is a fucking masterpiece right like technically aesthetically this is a beautiful incredible awe-inspiring movie but my takeaway leaving the theater is that it was like his last movie gravity and i'm a Quran guy but it did feel a little style over substance when comparing shoplifters to this movie. And it's just convenient for me because I saw them back to back, right? It gives me a good frame of reference. I knew six characters front and back after shoplifters. After Roma, I knew one character really, and everyone else was kind of window dressing. And maybe that's not what everyone felt in this in this movie. It's it's a masterpiece of, of technical acumen and just the beauty of the whole thing. But sort of the the soul of the film itself left me just a tad bit wanting. Do you disagree with me, Matt? I do, but I certainly see where you're coming from. You know, I think movies need to sort of exist on their own. They need to be effective by themselves, and they honestly probably need to be effective on first viewing. Yeah. Meaning that if you only see a movie once in your life, and it really didn't grab you the way it may have grabbed grabbed other people. It's not really your fault. It it may have something have been something to do with the movie. In other words, my argument that this movie will mature with each viewing it, it, it doesn't mean that that a movie can only that a movie should only be able to work if you watch it multiple times. That's just too much to ask of viewers. That being said. The first time I saw it, it was overwhelming, and I was like, that is a, another technical masterpiece from a guy who clearly has positioned himself as like one of the most incredible technical impresarios of his generation, maybe ever. But it didn't really grab me emotionally the way that I expected to, the way it sort of had to other viewers, and honestly, the way it, it had for my mom. I saw it with my mom at the New York Film Festival, and she was really, really moved by it. And, uh, and I was like, all right, didn't really grab me emotionally, but I certainly get what all the fuss is about. And yes, there are moments in it and sequences in it that are unlike anything I've ever seen before. And it is crazy to like take the you know the techniques of the stuff he learned or the toys he got to bring along from Children of Men or Gravity and apply them. <laughs> to this context, right? It's great. Um, it's great that we live in this world and it's great that Quran exists and gets to create in this world. So seeing it again the other day, I finally saw what all the fuss was about and I got deeply emotionally invested in it to the point where the real sort of centerpiece sequences, the the hospital, you know, the delivery scene and then the, um, without giving too much away, the scene that takes place in the ocean at the end, the climactic scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely washed over me. I mean, it's because I already knew what they were capable of technically that I could really sort of sort of invest in the characters a little more this time around or I wasn't sort of in this film festival environment where there was just like a lot of other factors and things going on but I really allowed myself to just be like swept up in Yulitsa Aparicio's journey or struggle if you will and it completely grabbed me emotionally moved me to tears and I was like yeah I get it this is this is a big this is a big deal movie like mm-hmm. this is this is an important film and not just for you know sort of like socio political reasons you know not just because of the environment we're living like uh, divorced from all that stuff just the movie existing by itself face value drop it in the middle of any era and how is it effective cinematically i think this is a movie we're going to be talking about for a really long time and um and yeah if somebody just put a gun in my head right now and said is this the best film Quran has ever made? I, I think I would have to concede. It just it, You can feel his investment in it, which just sort of like infiltrates all the other aspects of the, of the film. And the fact that I could be, become so involved with, with a journey that's so far from my own, with, with the experience of a character that's so far from my own experience, and still feel completely invested in her mm-hmm. and what she's doing. And, and I mean, she really, she carries this thing, man. If you're not with her, if you're not interested in her, if you're not invested in her, if you don't, you know, bleed for her, uh, then I the movie certainly wouldn't work. Yeah. But I but for some reason you end up with the situation where this you don't use the term non actor because if somebody's in a movie they're an actor. This is a first time <laughs> actor, right? Yeah. So this is a first time actor that Quran somehow found, and you end up with this just magical situation where this brilliant director just happens to find this vessel who will allow herself to be um, you know the face and the voice of this very very personal very 
kind of like heavy and transcendent film and just completely hits it out of the park. I I, I wouldn't be surprised if we like never hear from Yulitsa Aparicio again, if she never makes another movie, if she just goes back to being a teacher, whatever she was doing before. We may very well never see her name on a big screen ever again. And that won't take anything away from what an incredibly powerful performance this is and why she probably does deserve to win an Oscar. It'd be crazy if she wins an Oscar and then we never hear from her again, but I could see that happening. I mean, I've got obviously nothing against this movie. I mean, I'm giving it basically an A- minus on my first viewing as opposed to an A- plus or something. But I think, I think you touched on to something which is important, which may explain sort of maybe my emotional distance from the movie upon first viewing, which is it is kind of information aesthetic overload the first time you see it because there's so much just to sort of gawk at with how he's filming this stuff and and what you're seeing on screen there's so much to look at and so beautiful that maybe part of you isn't really paying attention to sort of the character stuff and the character's journey or whatnot so uh, you know I, i am really excited to watch this movie again you know you talked about your mom it's i've talked to a few people and it seems to me and we're talking about this directly with someone last night female audiences are really gravitating toward this movie and feel like it's extremely sad and depressing and and moving and sort of more male audiences upon first viewing aren't feeling that exact same thing and there are obvious reasons given the subject matter why that's true Um, Mm -hmm. but I am curious to see how I react the second time and if it mirrors sort of your your journey and your two viewings but I I mean I really can't wait to to see it again and I, I think you're probably right I think this will age incredibly well just given the fact that Koran doesn't make a ton of movies and he's clearly you know the the technical master of his time and you know we'll, we'll definitely be talking about this movie in, in 20 30 40 years it, it it reminded me a lot of Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon okay which is a little bit of a weird comp it's just I was just thinking about these these foreign films you know films not in the English language that really managed to infiltrate the quote-unquote mainstream and I was thinking about how unexpected it was that something like Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon became this enormous hit and it, it just be it just was a symptom of the strength of the filmmaking and how relatable the characters are in that movie even though you're dealing with this extreme situation there's yeah. all this magical realism and stuff like that movie just connected with people and I really think is a testament to like Ang Lee's storytelling ability. In this situation, you got Koran, who again is making, he was telling a story that's so far from my own experience. And yet I'm completely hanging on every, every narrative component of this thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking at it. I'm like, this is such an incredibly simple story, but the storytelling manner is so sophisticated and you just can't it's impossible to overstate how impressive it is when a filmmaker can take a very simple story and make it you know just tell it in an emotionally complex or sophisticated way and that's exactly what you have here it doesn't feel like it's ever uh, condescending to any of its characters or speaking down to you as an audience member and yet there's just a clarity to it all there's a there's a visual clarity and there's an emotional clarity and a narrative clarity to it yeah which is just it's kind of everything we ask for from great from great films right i mean that's that's uh, that's what filmmakers should impose upon themselves that's what they should ask of themselves as storytellers and the second time around you really also start to focus on the periphery of it all like there is so much going on like like you said it it can be a little bit overwhelming because the the visuals in the film are so dense they're photographically beautiful the con you know it's shot in this sumptuous airy 65 uh, black and white uh, uh, Lexus 65 rather black and white digital photography which basically means you're ostensibly shooting on an almost almost IMAX uh, size sensors uh, which is where all that unbelievable clarity comes from Mm -hmm. Um, but every single frame is just packed full of so much detail and it's detail from Koran's experience because it's semi-autobiographical and it's historical detail because of when it's taking place but it's also just experiential detail you know like there's scenes where there's like an argument that's going on in the foreground or you know there's kids crying in the foreground because they just heard that their parents are getting a divorce yeah and meanwhile in the background there's this beautiful wedding that's taking place yeah. right yeah. so you got you got all these kids crying their i mean their parents blessed marital union is breaking down and now they're all depressed they're eating ice cream and they're crying about it and then in the background it's like oh look at this beautiful wedding that's taking <laughs> this ornate you know elaborate wedding yeah that's back I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty much just set dressing. 
Uh, and yet it's so intricate. And uh, so much of the film is filled with that. And, you know, so much has been spoken about or written about in terms of like how the film deals with airplanes. Yeah. Uh, airplanes become this crazy motif. I- I've never been to Mexico City, but apparently that is just the, the constant. You know, the, yeah. Yeah. The airport there is so huge. It's such a hub that it's just constantly, constantly like that would have been part of Quran's experience of just constantly hearing and seeing these airplanes flying overhead at yeah. all times. And I don't know if we'll ever actually get if he'll ever admit to this, but I would love to know how much of those are CG and how how much, if any, are actually practical. Because there are moments where the timing of these planes, where they land in the frame is so damn specific that I almost can't believe that it would have been possible to time it that way. But then again, if anybody could do it, it's probably Quran, right? Watching this movie, I'm like, there definitely has to be some CG involved in this, right? I mean, it started with, you know, Children of Men. There, There's a lot of seamless CG, but you can kind of tell sometimes. You're right. There's no way he timed it with the, with the planes. It's not possible, and especially because it is such a motif, right? The movie begins and ends uh, with, with planes flying overhead. And I'm reminded of, do you think the 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 biggest sequence in the movie the, the the one that people will talk about the most is just the the riots into the hospital that whole thing i mean that that oh scene God. in the where, where they're getting the crib or whatever is just unbelievable it's an all-timer man yeah it's it's really i mean it's him pulling out all the stops because you're right it's not just the riot it's all the way into the delivery which of course is you know all captured well the entire sequence isn't captured in one shot but the harrowing delivery sequences is, is all in one shot of course and that's where you leads up you just watch you leads up risk you're just like how a how do you take anybody to that place emo- how do you get anybody to go there emotionally b how do you do that with somebody who's not trained in this you yeah. know and, and managed to get her there maybe, and maybe that's what it takes maybe you just have to be like a completely empty vessel and not have any sort of professional baggage you bring along to this mm-hmm. but uh, but yeah that entire sequence like yeah the when they're buying the crib looking out the window the riot being stuck in that very Fellini-esque tunnel trying to get to the hospital and then ending up on the gurney yeah I mean it's it's really the centerpiece of the film right god I can't wait to see this movie again and I'm I'm really I'm thinking about watching it on at home just to see what that experience is like. So they get you. Yeah, I mean, now that you've already made the investment, you know, I certainly wouldn't. It, it, no, but but what I'm saying is like if I had the choice, like I I, I would go see it in the theater again. But I, I kind of want to see what it how it plays how it plays at home because that's where most people I assume are, are going to watch it. And just the how deliberate this movie is, I feel like people who aren't familiar with Quaran and 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 don't understand so, sort of who he is and his sort of credibility i just wonder how much what their attention spans are going to be for something like that like i I can just imagine so many people like oh let's check this out this has a lot of buzz and then turning it off after 20 minutes because nothing really is you know quote unquote happened what oh absolutely that's what terrifies me because you really need the first honestly first 45 minutes of the movie are all conditioning right yeah yeah. they are just conditioning you and then he's going to pay it off you know and then he's going to and then it's going to pay off like a slot machine yeah it's it's real deliberate and it's it's a little alienating there for a while Mm -hmm. and and that's all intentional but that's what's scary about the netflix thing really because this it's the second half of this movie when it really really flies in the ways that will completely grip everybody Mm -hmm. but you got to be able to get there you know and and you're exactly right if you're chopping vegetables on your uh, kitchen counter making dinner looking at this on your ipad sort of out of the corner of your eye (laughs) you know watching a movie with subtitles is especially i mean you can't watch a movie with subtitles while you're screwing around on your phone or making dinner doing laundry because it just you just get lost too quickly well that that might be something it has going for it actually so if you do turn on netflix you actually have to pay attention or even it's just a lost cause to begin with so i don't know maybe that's one of the things that Quaran tells himself after he made this deal with the devil. <laughs> he did. <laughs> that big red N yeah. is like the devil horns. The incredible riot into the delivery sequence is amazing. And then the climactic scene, which we don't need to go too deeply in. Maybe we can get further into it when we do our top 10 here in a couple weeks yeah. once more people have seen the movie. But there's something that happens during that final sequence. There's something they do with the camera where I just can't wrap my brain around, like having spent so many years in the grip department, having to rig cameras and as a, as a camera assistant and knowing what it takes to move the camera and knowing what it takes to rig the camera and knowing what it takes to, with especially something like the Alexa, you know, with the Alexa 65, which is going to be a huge camera body, where they're able to take it, how far they're able to get it into the water and how they were able to, like what sort of, a, what sort of support they used to rig the camera that way 
I just from a from a completely camera tech nerd standpoint just blows the top of my head off. I just do not know how they achieve that. But then again, that's kind of what Children of Men did as well, right? Yeah. How many sequences of that movie are just like, how did they do that? How the fuck like, did that happen? They, how did they get away? How did they make that happen? And it seems like Koran is constantly just giving himself these challenges. It seems like it's part of the fun for him. With the exception of maybe some of the more gimmicky parts of Gravity, they do tend to always serve the story and they do tend to always be completely woven into the fabric of the storytelling as opposed to just drawing attention to themselves aesthetically. Yeah. So in that regard, I think that's why he has proved himself to be such a master. Well, I think we should table this conversation. We'll have a lot more Roma talk in the in the next few weeks and as we get into, you know, the meat of award seasons in our top 10s. But yeah, it's quite a stunning achievement and I suspect this movie will grow on me even though I, I you know, I love it as it is, but I it, sitting down and do my top 10 list is going to be it's going to be hard, you know, figuring out where this where this lands uh, next to some of the movies I, I I really have connected with. Well, I mean, don't feel obligated. I mean, it is, it has, you are not as... going to shame me. You don't right need now. my permission, <laughs> but, uh, but it is, it is telling that it has emerged as this, as this critical darling. And, um, and I do think that this is a pretty good, pretty good chance that Koran walks away with his second directing Oscar here in February, because even if you're not that taken with the movie, even if you feel a little bit alienated from it emotionally, it is pretty hard to argue with the fact that this is a directorial achievement. Quran is the star of this movie, and this is, in a lot of ways, the culmination of everything he's been working towards his entire career. And I think that, like you said, it's a really long shot. This movie wins Best Picture. It's just hard to imagine in this, and a Netflix film as well, yeah. and, and something beating a star. But, you know, there's a thousand reasons why Roma has a long hill to climb in terms of winning Best Picture. But to me, the Quran for Best Director thing. I don't know. He's got nothing on Peter Farrelly, so. <laughs> well, it's also just going to be crazy. It's just going to be crazy to be living in a world where not only do all three of the, quote unquote, you know, three caballeros of Mexican filmmaking have Oscars, but we're going to be in a situation where two out of three have have won two Oscars apiece in the last, you know, f- what, eight years? Yeah. Unbelievable. Well, it'll be weird when it's Quaron versus Adam McKay and Peter Farrelly, right? Like, that's such a bizarre... Um, and Bradley Cooper, right? By Spike Lee may very Spike well be Lee, in there. Yeah. It's it's going to be an interesting... It's going to be an interesting group. And then maybe we're going to get a situation where Spike Lee sounds off about how racist he finds Green Book to be. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to get contentious. Well, let's wrap it up, um, and we'll talk more about this and other stuff in the, in the coming weeks, but uh, this might be be our last contemporary podcast of the year if that's the case uh happy new year everybody yeah and uh happy eighth anniversary pal we just just turned eight this last week so here's to here's to eight more at least oh at least yeah (laughs) this is is the first of many eight year anniversaries in my book Um, exactly all right until next time this has been we like movies say goodbye matt adios (laughs) 